0: Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. If you'd open up your Bibles to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, we're going to give attention for these next few minutes to the inspired Word of God. And in particular, we want to look at what the Word of God has to say regarding our preaching theme for 2017 here at Lakeside on taking sin seriously. It's going to begin this morning from James, the first chapter. As you're finding James chapter 1, let me echo the welcome from earlier. It is great to see everybody on this beautiful, beautiful Lord's Day morning. We do, as always, have guests in attendance once again. We appreciate so very much that you've come to be with us here. We hope that you are made to feel welcome and to feel at home. We hope that you are being edified by worshiping with us this day. But most of all, what we hope, we hope that you will leave here this day saying, Truly, God is among you. That's what we're seeking to do. That is our greatest desire is that you will see the Lord in us and in what we are doing and as a result be drawn closer to Him. In James chapter 1, let's read together here beginning in verse number 13. In James chapter 1 and in verse 13, James says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and He Himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That is, I believe, the definitive passage on the process of sin. Sin, sinful living... Sinful behavior, sinful conduct, it doesn't just happen in a heartbeat, does it? No, there is a process there, little bits at a time. We dip our big toe in the water to kind of feel it out. Then we maybe get an ankle in there to get a little bit acclimated to it. Next thing you know, we're wading up to it in our knees, and then before long, what's happened? We're completely in over our head. And I believe that is exactly what James is describing here in this passage. That first we are tempted. All of us are tempted. Temptation then leads to evil, lustful desires. We then yield to that temptation. That temptation then gives birth. It produces sin. That sin then leads to death. Spiritually we die separated from God. And if we continue in that sin, we will be eternally separated from God. It's a process, which means then that each and every one of us ought to be vitally interested in figuring out how to interrupt that process. I do not want to get involved in sin to where it becomes this habitual, ongoing, regular, daily, moment-by-moment practice. I want to arrest that as quickly as possible. I want to stop sin before it becomes this chain reaction of destructive behavior that causes all kinds of problems, not the least of which is the loss of my soul. The question is, how do you do that? How do you do that? How do you throw a wrench into all of that process? Well, I believe that God has given each and every one of us a gift. Something that, in very many ways, short-circuits the process that James 1 describes And in fact, it stops sin from leading to more sin. And this morning what I want to do is I want to develop with you that gift. It is a gift that is so very precious. It is a gift that is so very powerful at the same time. Now I need to tell you, this is a gift that you can very, very easily mishandle. And if you do that, you'll just make a mess of all kinds of stuff. I also must tell you that our society at large pretty much just hates this gift and our society is doing everything that it can to make sure that people do not use the gift. but if you use it, if you understand its value, if you understand its power and if you use it properly, then you will stop sin dead in its tracks. The Bible has a gift for you this morning. Look in Jeremiah the sixth chapter. And we'll unwrap it right there. In Jeremiah chapter 6, you may just want to keep your marker here because I'm going to come back to it a little bit later. In Jeremiah 6, the Lord speaks through His prophet Jeremiah and He says the following in verse 15. In Jeremiah 6 and in verse 15, the Lord says, Were they ashamed? Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No. They were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. The gift that the Bible is giving us this morning is the gift of shame. That is what causes blushing. When you are ashamed of what you have done, the capillaries in your cheeks, they go into flood mode. And that blood rushes to your face. It rushes to your neck. And there is that bright red beacon on your neck and on your face. And that bright red beacon says, I did wrong. And I know that I did wrong. And there's no excuse for what I did that was wrong. And I am so ashamed that I did it. That, that is the gift of shame. Now, I recognize that it's pretty unusual to hear somebody stand up in front of an audience and talk about blushing and shame as being a, a positive kind of thing. But, of course, our society doesn't think much of shame at all, does it? In fact, I did a quick search on Amazon just to see what kind of books are available on shame these days. And here's a sampling of some of those titles. Healing the Shame that Binds You. Letting Go of Shame. 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 The silent epidemic. Twelve steps to overcoming shame. Our culture is not much on shame. And of course, that doesn't surprise us, or at least it shouldn't surprise us. Since now we live in a time, for example, when a former Olympian has decided that he is a woman. And he puts on a dress. And he gallivants all across the country. And he gets standing ovations and awards for courage. You know, it used to be that if a man put on a dress, it was a joke. Ha ha. Or if a man was caught seriously wearing a dress, that would be embarrassing. How shameful people would say. But now, now that's all changed in America, isn't it? Now, our world lauds people like Bruce Jenner. He goes all across the media and all across the country encouraging people to continue in their shameful behavior. I believe very much the words that were spoken in Jeremiah 6 and verse 15 could just as well be spoken about 2017 America. They do not know how to blush. That is why this morning I am presenting to you a sermon that is very much counter to our culture. Because instead of talking to you this morning about how to get rid of shame, I want to talk to you about how the Bible treats shame as a gift as a crucial and vital element in our walk with God. I want to submit to you this morning that in our battle against sin, that shame can be a very, very good thing. Do you believe that? I believe the Bible teaches that. And this morning I want to show you exactly why that is. Maybe I need to begin just by saying a word or two in the direction of when it's not good to be ashamed when we should not feel shame we need to recognize that there are occasions when shame is not warranted and we want to be on guard for that would you find with me in the old testament in second samuel 19 please in second samuel chapter 19 here's a bit of a tough text not necessarily tough to understand but it's tough to have to read i said a minute ago that shame is something that can be mishandled it's kind of tricky Which is why it's important for us to understand that false shame, false shame is something that can be pushed upon us. It can be pushed upon us as a result of the bad conduct of others. In 2 Samuel chapter 19, this is King David, and he is mourning, in fact he is mourning excessively over the death of his rebellious and wicked son Absalom. And so as a result, his commander Joab comes to him in verse 5. 2 Samuel 19 verse 5. Then Joab came into the house to the king and he said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and you hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you for today, I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead, then you would be pleased. Joab says, "David, why are you acting this way? All hysterical with your emotions and so forth. You're loud and you know very public displays of, of grief here over this rebellious son who wanted to kill you, who was trying to overthrow the government. Your public grief over that it's causing these men." your servants, your, your soldiers in battle, the guys who fought for you, the guys who tried to protect your life, who put their lives on the line, you're causing them to feel shame. Your behavior is causing these good men to feel bad, to feel rotten about themselves, to feel as if they've done something wrong when in fact they haven't done anything wrong. That is false shame. And I want you to know that that still goes on even today. When you are doing the right thing, but somebody else, because of their poor decisions and their poor behavior, they will try to then heap on you all kinds of shame. And sadly, I found, particularly when I worked in the child support office for 10 years, I found that that happens most often in abusive homes. I want to be clear. Putting shame on others when it's your bad behavior that should be shamed, that is ungodliness. That ruins what God has designed shame for. And there is no excuse for it. Absolutely none. And if you maybe this morning, if you need help escaping from false shame, a bunch of foolishness that somebody else is trying to ladle on you as they maybe acted out in their own bad behavior or in their anger or maybe in their alcohol-fueled rage, then what you need to do is you need to get that help so that you can then walk free. From false shame. Don't let somebody shove shame on you when you are blameless. And since we're talking about times when shame is not warranted, let's just grab this second idea. We must never, absolutely never, under any circumstances, be ashamed of Christ and the gospel. Jesus speaks to that explicitly in Luke the ninth chapter. Would you find Luke chapter nine? As Jesus talks here about true discipleship, What's it mean to be a true follower of Jesus? Well, Luke 9, 26, here's part of that. In Luke 9 and in verse 26, Jesus says, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when He comes in His glory, and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Cannot must not be ashamed of our relationship and our identity in Christ Jesus. That just, that just doesn't work. That's just not compatible with being a Christian. Do you remember as well what Paul wrote in Romans the first chapter? In Romans chapter 1, here's what very much should be our anthem. Well, just make this our anthem for our lives. In Romans 1 verse 16, Paul said, For I am not, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Can't ever be ashamed of the saving message of the gospel. You know, sometimes, sometimes young people, whenever they find themselves in kind of a kind of a prickly situation, sometimes they'll, they'll look at that temptation or whatever it is, and they'll say, I, 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 I can't be involved in that. And maybe their friends will say, Well, well, why not? Why can't you? And they'll say, well, yeah, I can't do that because because my mom and dad will kill me if I do that. Well, that's not an altogether bad response. But I'll tell you one that's even better is when we say, I can't do that because that's wrong. Because the Bible says that that's wrong. Because that's not what it means to be a Christian. The Bible calls for us to be people of courage, to be people of conviction, who will stand up for Jesus, who will stand up for His Word and what is right. That's what people like Joseph did. That's what men like Daniel did. That's what Paul did to stand up and say, this is who I am. I'm a Christian. I'm not going to just bury my head in the sand. I'm not going to cave into the peer pressure. I'm not going to be a coward. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And so, having said some things then about when shame is not warranted, let me now talk to you about when it is appropriate to be ashamed. And I do want to press upon you very, very hard this morning that shame is indeed a gift from God. Because if I am ashamed at the right time, it will stop me from getting involved deeper and deeper in sin. That if I can blush, that that will kill sin. It will kill more sinning. Let's develop that idea for a couple of minutes. Would you find with me in the Old Testament again in the book of Ezra? In Ezra chapter 9. In Ezra chapter 9, this is a passage that I believe helps us to really understand the power of shame, what that drives us then to do. In Ezra chapter 9, Ezra is told that Israel, having just returned from Babylonian captivity, they are already right back into the sin that got them sent off into captivity. They are, amongst other things, intermarrying with the pagan and godless people of the land in which they dwell. A direct violation of the law of God. How does Ezra feel about that? Ezra himself was not even involved in the sin. But how did Ezra feel about that? In Ezra chapter 9, look in verse 5. At the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn. And I fell upon my knees and I spread out my hands to the Lord, my God, saying, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. Shame and blushing covered Ezra from the top of his head to the bottoms of his feet, even to the way that he wore his clothes. The Bible says he tore his clothes. He was ashamed. Now what exactly are we talking about whenever we talk about shame? Well, we are talking about an uncomfortable feeling of guilt and humiliation that arises from sin and failure. Focus in on that idea of being made to feel uncomfortable. Who likes feeling uncomfortable? Nobody likes to feel uncomfortable. We don't like that. We don't like the feeling of discomfort. And so whenever we are discomforted, what do we usually seek to do? We seek to get comfortable once again. Think about about babies. Why did God give babies that piercing? You absolutely cannot ignore it high-pitched, wailing scream that their voices are able to produce. Why did God do that? Because if in the middle of the night, baby said in a very quiet and polite voice, Daddy, I would like a snack. It's 4 a.m., but I'd like a snack. What would I say to that? I'd say, sorry about your luck. I'm all comfortable in bed. I'll talk to you in the morning. You see, because I am comfortable, then I'm just going to stay comfortable. But of course, when babies start crying in the way that they do, in that grating way, what happens? Our bodies, we become discomforted. We can't go on sleeping. We're seeking to try to get comfortable once again. And so what do you do? You elbow your wife and you say, get up and take care of the baby. No. (laughs) Be a good husband. Be a good father. Don't do that, gentlemen. But in that moment, when that moment comes, we want to be comfortable again. You may even be sitting here this morning. I see some people fanning themselves. You might be uncomfortable right now. Maybe it's a little warm in the building for you. Maybe it's a little cold in the building for you. When we're uncomfortable, we seek to get comfortable once again. We want to get out of that state of discomfort. And whenever we talk about sin, I hope you are starting to see now why shame is so valuable. Because when shame discomforts us, then that prompts us to take action. That would be 2 Corinthians chapter 7. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul writes to a group of people here who were ashamed of their sinful conduct. Paul had wrote them a letter, and it had caused them to be ashamed of how they were living and acting. And so instead of just kind of sitting in that discomfort, they decided, we want to do something about this. We don't want to be uncomfortable forever. In 2 Corinthians 7, look in verse 9. Paul says, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces Death. Here I have this uncomfortable feeling of of guilt and of humiliation from recognizing that I have violated the will of God. I am red-faced because of that. I am grieved by my sin, do you see? Paul says that's going to shut down more sinning. I'm not just going to go on and just keep sinning more, and just keep on being uncomfortable. No, when I am discomforted, when I am ashamed, I'm going to stop that. I'm going to repent. I'm going to turn away from that wickedness so that I'll no longer feel that guilt and that humiliation. Shame is the very catalyst for all of that to take place. It is a fundamental key to our relationship with God because because all of us are going to sin. Let's Just go ahead and mark that down. It's not a question of, If you're going to sin, it's a matter of when you're going to sin. And when you sin, the question then becomes, what am I going to do about that? Will that sin that I just committed, will that lead to another sin and another sin and another sin? Or am I going to back the truck up and stop sinning? You see, shame triggers repentance. Yet even as I say that, I recognize that not everybody does repent, do they? Not everybody has a humble and a contrite heart. Not everybody regrets and grieves over their sins. Do you want to know why that is? Because not everybody treats shame as the gift that it is. In fact, when you read in the Bible, you start reading about various men and women, the various stories that we have in the Scripture, it's pretty easy to start spotting who it was that valued shame Who it was that didn't value shame. Because the people who did value shame, they got right with God. And the people who didn't blush, who weren't ashamed, they didn't get right with God. Remember, for example, King Saul. King Saul failed to destroy all of the Amalekites as God had instructed him to do. Was Saul ashamed of that? No, he was not. No, he was not. 1 Samuel 15 actually goes on to tell us that he set up a monument to himself over that. That guy was not ashamed. By way of contrast, what about his successor? What about King David? David got involved in major, egregious sin, adultery, deception of the highest order, murder. The prophet Nathan came to him and he said, You're the man. You did this, David. David blushed. David was ashamed, shamed in front of the entire royal court. David's shame drove him to repentance. What about in the New Testament? What about Peter, for example? Peter denied the Lord three times, but he was ashamed of that. He blushed. He got right with God. On the opposite end of the spectrum, what about like the Sanhedrin council? Those are the guys who were primarily responsible for murdering Jesus. Most of them, they weren't ashamed of that. And in fact, most of them never got right with the Lord. Do you see the difference here? That shame was working in some people and shame's not working in other people. When Saul of Tarsus, when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus and he started to learn and realize that he had been doing some things and things that he was doing was very, very wrong, he became terribly ashamed. How do I know that? Acts 9 tells us that he went to Damascus and he didn't eat for three days. Is it any wonder then? When Ananias comes to him and he says, you need to arise and you need to be baptized to wash away your sins, Saul was all over that like white on rice. Because he wanted that shame removed from his life. Repentance. Obeying God, submitting to him that. That removes shame. Let me give you maybe a frightening verse in this connection. Would you find 1 Timothy chapter 4, please? In 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul actually tells us that you can reach a point where your shame mechanism doesn't even work anymore. You can reach a point where your blusher becomes broken. Did you know that? In 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says there in verse 2 that there will be people, 1 Timothy 4 verse 2, there will be people who through the insincerity of liars, their consciences are seared. Seared. That's just another way of saying they can't blush. And if you can't blush, if you can't feel shame, then you can't stop sinning. That is exactly why we do not want to resist shame whenever we feel that in our lives. We do not want to just immediately push that away and say, I don't want that, I'll get that out of here right away. No, we want to see that as being a blessing from God because it will lead us to repent. In fact, have you ever thought about this? Have you ever thought about the fact that shame is actually one of the major things that separates us from the animal kingdom? Just answer me this. Have you ever seen a dog blush? You ever seen a dog get red-faced? No. No, you haven't. I've seen dogs do things that made me blush, but dogs don't have the capacity. Dogs don't have the ability to blush when they do something that's wrong. Dogs don't get red-faced. Animals, the beasts of the field, they don't get red-faced for the things they do that are wrong that then triggers repentance in their lives. Animals are not built with that shame mechanism built within them. The noted author C.S. Lewis, he once wrote, We have lost the invaluable faculty of being shocked. A faculty that distinguishes men and women from the beast. That is exactly right. Animals do not feel shame for their behavior. Lions don't feel bad when they kill a zebra. Cobras don't feel bad when they bite somebody. If you leave shiny jewelry out on the windowsill and a crow or a bird swoops in and steals that and flies off with they don't feel bad about that. They're not concerned about that at all. Animals don't experience shame like you and I. And the reason for that is is that animals don't have a standard of conduct to which they are held accountable. But you and I, creatures who are made in the image of God, we do have such a standard. Can we go back to where we started in Jeremiah chapter 6, in Jeremiah 6, find that passage again. We read verse 15 at the outset of the lesson. That's the passage that said they weren't ashamed of what they were doing. They couldn't even blush for their sins. Let's look at a couple of verses that surround that. What was the problem there in Jeremiah's time? In Jeremiah 6, look in verse 10. Jeremiah 6, verse 10, the Lord says, To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears are uncircumcised. They cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord is to them an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. We're not interested in the standard here. We don't want to hear about that standard, Lord. Drop down to verse 16. Thus says the Lord, Stand by the roads and look, and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is, and walk in it, and find rest for your souls. But what did they say? They said, we will not walk in it. We're not interested in your standard. We're not interested in your ways. We're not interested in the Word of God. We're not doing that, they say. So, sometimes people ask, why is it today that when you get on social media, you get on Facebook, you get on your Instagram, or you get on your Twitter, and here you are, your friends, and you're connected with some of your brothers and sisters in Christ, and you get on there, you're on Facebook, and you're scrolling down your newsfeed, and you start to notice that your very own brothers and sisters in Christ are doing things for which they ought to be ashamed, for which they ought to be repenting, but they're not repenting. No, they're actually posting pictures of it. Hey, look at me here. I'm out getting drunk tonight. Hey, look at me. I'm down here at the beach naked and everybody can see all of my flesh. What in the world is up with that? Well, I'll tell you what's up with that. Is the fact that they don't know the standards. And so as a result, they're doing things that are shameful, but they're not blushing about that. They don't know God's Word, or maybe even worse, they do know God's Word. They just don't believe it. That's what Paul describes in Philippians the third chapter. Would you find Philippians 3? In Philippians 3, I mentioned a second ago talking about animals. You want to see people acting like animals? Philippians 3 is your verse. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul talks here in verse 19, Philippians 3 verse 19, about people whose end is their destruction, their God is their belly, notice this, and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. Instead of being ashamed and repenting of their sin, these are people who glory in their sin, revel in their sin, take pride in their sin, brag about their sin, post pictures on Facebook about their sin, the very things that they ought to be ashamed of. You know what all of that says is? That says that they just don't trust that God's way is best. God says, look for the ancient paths. Walk in that way. They say, we don't want that. The basis of everything that I am talking about this morning is absolute trust in God And trust that His way is best. That God is pure and God is holy. God is so much wiser. He is so much greater. He is so much higher than us. His ways are are better than our ways. His ways are higher than our ways. That I don't get to vote in this. That what I have to say, this is not a democracy. I don't get to say so in any of this. God is God and He is right. He is right every single time. Time. And so when I violate that standard, what I am saying in essence to the Lord is I'm saying, Lord, I just know so much better. You're saying to do this way, but you know what? This way is just a whole lot better. You say that sin is bad and it's a dead. But no no, 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 this is a good way. I'm going to go in this direction over here. I like this way. You really don't know what you're talking about. My way. My way is the right way. When we don't trust God, then we're not going to have shame. And when we don't have shame, we're not going to feel discomforted by our sin. And if we are never discomforted by our sin, then we're never going to repent. I need to trust God. That's where it all has to begin. I need to know and I need to believe that His standard of conduct is absolutely right. It is the way to go. So that when I do understand that concept, I understand that standard, that when I do violate His teaching, I'll blush. All that blood will go rushing to my face and to my neck and it will send that signal to my brain that, whoa, something is amiss here. I will be ashamed. And that discomfort will then spur me on to exactly where I need to go and that is to repentance so that I can be right with my God. That... That is taking sin seriously. Now you need to recognize this morning that this is not what our society is preaching and teaching and promoting. In fact, many so-called churches today, not even they are preaching this. You're not going to hear very many people in our world today praising the virtues and the values of shame. You go to work tomorrow. You tell your coworkers about, hey, yeah, our preacher yesterday preaches, preaches great lesson about the, the value of shame and why it's important and why we ought to treat that as a gift. You know what your coworkers are going to say? They're going to say, you have lost your mind. What in the world are you talking about? But I believe, I believe the reason that we have assembled as the people of God is because we want more than the spirit of our age and our times. We want to confront that ultimate reality, that ultimate truth God Himself. We want to know who God is. We want to know what God wants and we want to know what God says. We want His Word to guide our steps in this life. So when God says that we can be a people who know how to blush and who use the gift of shame to bring us to repentance, we're all over that. Like white on rice. And I'm saying to you this morning, maybe the takeaway of all of this this morning, is do not squelch. Do not suppress. Do not suppress true biblical shame for sin. Allow that to work in you and to move you to action so that you will come to God and find forgiveness and cleansing from your sin. I really can think then of no better way to extend the invitation of our Lord. Because the invitation of our Lord is an invitation. To find pardon and cleansing from sin. By coming to the very one who makes that pardon and that cleansing possible. Jesus the Christ. If what I have talked about this morning from the Bible has maybe struck a little bit of a nerve with you, if maybe you've been sitting here today and you've kind of been squirming a little bit, you've been caused to feel some discomfort by the Word of God, I'm not apologizing for that at all. Good. I'm glad that you are made to feel uncomfortable. Because what that is, is that is shame functioning exactly as God designed it. The question is, what will you do? Will you just continue to to feel that discomfort and just kind of sit in it and wallow in it? Or will you take decisive action to have that shame removed? If you have never repented of your sins and been baptized into Christ, as Acts 2 and 38 instructs, then this is the moment to act. If you have obeyed the gospel, you're already a child of God, but there is unrepented sin in your life, then brother or sister, this also is your moment to act. And if there is something that we as the congregation here, if there's something that we can do to assist you in doing just that, then would you take advantage of this opportunity right now? Do it while we stand and while we sing.